This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Fostering Conversations. I'm Deborah Lintner. As a foster parent, you're undoubtedly aware of the role trauma plays with foster care. But are you familiar with secondary trauma that could be affecting your well-being? It's those feelings you get as you deal with children's behaviors and hear their trauma when you begin to wonder, can I do this? Do I even want to renew my license? In today's episode, we'll revisit a presentation on secondary trauma from Utah Foster Care's 2022 Symposium. Our guest, Amy Bates, is a foster parent of many years with a wealth of experience in her toolbox. And we're also lucky to have Amy as one of our staff members in Southern Utah. So listen closely as Amy familiarizes us with the signs to watch for and how you and your family can protect yourselves from the negative impact of secondary trauma. I wanted to talk to you today about what happens when empathy hurts. I realized that title could raise some eyebrows. However, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out just the right phrase that would introduce the topic and also help us to start acknowledging a difficult truth which is, while having compassion and empathy is a good thing, even a noble and worthwhile intention, we also need to acknowledge that the very act of opening ourselves up to love and care for another person can become harmful for ourselves. When looking at this through the eyes of foster parenting lens, we need to be prepared for this eventuality. So when it occurs, we are not left feeling confused and defenseless. In being proactive, we can set ourselves up to not only to survive our call as foster parents, but to thrive, which is something I would imagine all of us are striving for. I want to begin with briefly talking about some terms that you might have heard to describe leftover feelings of too much trauma. Terms like indirect trauma, burned out, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, or secondary traumatic stress. We may have all heard those phrases when talking about the subject, and all of these labels have their own definition with slightly differing symptoms. However, for today's discussion, we're not going to focus on which label fits each of us individually. Rather, we will put them all under the umbrella of secondary trauma and use that term throughout. We are going to define secondary trauma as the emotional duress that results when an individual hears about the firsthand traumatic experience of another. It could also be described as what happens when we open up our hearts to hear or bear someone's story of devastation or betrayal that results in our own cherished beliefs being challenged as well as ourselves being changed. We are talking about it in the context of being a foster or adopted parent, but obviously it can occur in other aspects of your life as well. There are some symptoms that you may notice if you're experiencing secondary traumatic stress. Things like feeling helpless or hopeless, a sense that you can never do enough and that you should be doing more, hypervigilance, mimonizing, chronic exhaustion and physical ailments, relationship issues, guilt, fear, anger, and inability to empathize or numbing, addiction. And you may also have intrusive images, thoughts, or dreams. It's important to note that two people with secondary trauma can have very few symptoms in common. And people who are continually being exposed to new trauma, such as foster parents, 
can develop symptoms that change over time as they process new experiences. I want to personally share some experiences that I had when dealing with secondary trauma. The case started, as most of them do, with the RFC calling and asking me to take two kids, one preteen and a teenager. These kids came with very little other than a lot of fear, very well hidden under a big chip on their shoulder. I'm sure many of you can relate. Due to the dynamics of the abuse, they both had a very different feelings about their parents that they understandably had a hard time expressing, especially when the other one could hear. However, they both had a desperate need to try to make sense of what had happened to them. So slowly, they started to open up to me about details. Not only were they opening up and sharing, but because of the extent of the abuse, the media was constantly reporting on it as well. I am talking, we couldn't listen to the radio on the way to school, and we had to cancel our subscription to the newspaper. That kind of constant. Even though we took great lengths in avoiding the media for the kids, I personally couldn't stop looking up every article and reading every comment on social media. It quickly became somewhat of an obsession with me. A new story would come out and I would be preoccupied all day until I got the kids to bed. And then I would spend hours reading basically the same article, just from different sources, along with all the hateful comments that went with it. As you can imagine, going to sleep after reading all that was a next to impossible and my ability to fall asleep and stay asleep greatly diminished, which by itself brought on chronic exhaustion. In addition, the first thing to go when I don't get enough sleep is my patience. So it also led me to being short-tempered and frustrated with my kids much more often than was typical. And as one would imagine, it started to cause relationship issues with my loved ones. Looking back, the most surprising symptom was how the trauma started to alter my view of the world. For the most part, I'm a glass-half-full type of girl, but I quickly began to focus on all the ugly parts of the world until it was all I could see. This left me feeling hopeless as to the future of the world. I also felt a heavy sense of guilt that I did not and could not do more for the children. I wanted the ability to somehow go back in time before I knew they'd even existed and save them from the horror they experienced. I can recognize now, and even then, how that made little sense, but at the time, it was a thought that almost consumed me. This case was a little abnormal due to the extensive news coverage, but since that time, I've experienced all of those symptoms to one degree or another with different children and their own stories who have come into my home. There are also some risk factors that may play a part in your symptoms and the effects secondary trauma may play in your life. Those could be your personality and coping style, because each of us are born with a temperament framing how we relate to the outside world. For example, in the same stressful situation, one person may become anxious, another becomes energized to take action, and yet another may sit back and think about what is happening. Your personal history can also play a part in how secondary trauma will affect you. Growing up, were you middle class or did you grow up in poverty? Was your family close and nurturing or was there addiction or violence in the home? Certain experiences or life events will leave lasting imprints on who we are and how we see or define the others. These will also help us to determine how vulnerable we are to certain stresses or issues, experiences that remind us of what we have been unable to resolve during our life, particularly in our early relationships, increase our vulnerability. This is one of the reasons why when you first meet with someone from Utah Foster Care to talk about becoming a foster parent, we ask those sometimes hard questions. Current life circumstances may also play a part. Are you unhappy at work or having a conflict with the boss or coworkers? Do you have children? Do you feel like a successful parent? 
Just buy a new house, move, start a new job. Each of us have our own unique life story. The reality is that current life circumstances are always changing. Today, you may feel confident and full of energy. Tomorrow, circumstances may bring about unexpected stress, significantly altering your mood. Change is very much related to stress. Change can take time and energy, making us more inclined to the negative effects of secondary trauma. Social supports are a key component of resiliency. Having people we can turn to when we feel overwhelmed or distressed, who love and value us, is very important. When social supports are weak or non-existent, stress, pain, and suffering are often accentuated. Isolation decreases access to resources and available options. Many people experience higher resiliency through a faith-filled life. Belief in a higher being in the values and principles of their faith and being part of a larger faith community provides a perspective for their lives and source of support in times of distress. If you don't have that, you may be more likely to experience symptoms related to secondary trauma. Another significant risk factor is that secondary trauma is rarely talked about, even among foster parents. It often can become the elephant in the room, so to speak, for various reasons. Sometimes when we share feelings surrounding the trauma we are holding, we are told that we are saints for being willing to be vulnerable in that way. When that is the last thing you are feeling like, that can be hard, if not extremely annoying to hear. Some may think that the lack of sleep, connection, or downtime is a badge of honor, symptoms that we just put up with if we are good foster parents. One worry I had early on as a foster parent was that if I shared how hearing all this trauma was affecting me, then someone might feel I was not able to handle the kids and consider moving them from my home. Others may say, you signed up for this. You knew what you were getting into when you try to share what you were going through. And so rather than listening to that nonsense, you don't say anything at all. Another big one I hear from lots of parents is the worry that in actually bringing trauma into the home rather than trying to keep it out as most parents are doing, you are putting the children in your home at risk. Acknowledging that difficult truth can sometimes be hard. So we choose to pretend and keep it unspoken in the hopes that it doesn't really exist. All of these factors can make sharing some of your struggles difficult, if not impossible, and thus increase your risk of significant symptoms of secondary trauma. Now that we have given it a name, we've defined it and what it may look like and why you may struggle with it, let's switch gears and spend the remainder of our time figuring out how to protect ourselves against it. The fact is that a construction worker would never go into a dangerous area without the proper equipment, and neither should you as foster parents. Maya Angelou was quoted as saying, as you grow older, you will discover that you have two hands, one for helping yourself, the other for helping others. To me, this means that we need to do what we can to protect and care for ourselves so that we are prepared and equipped to give attention and love to others. The first thing that we need to do is a self-assessment and mindfully examine where we are currently at. It may be helpful to write down some of the areas of concern that we have noticed, and maybe even some that people who have been brave enough to mention to us. Some questions to ask yourself would be, are you experiencing distressing memories or dreams? Are you in a constant negative emotional state? Do you have negative beliefs about yourself or others? Are you avoiding activities you previously enjoyed? Do you talk excessively about your trauma or those in your homes? Are you feeling disconnected to others? Are you having a difficult time getting a restful night's sleep? Are you struggling with concentration? Are you having anger or outburst? 
You also need to become aware of your triggers. A trigger is anything that sets you off emotionally and activates memories of trauma. This is applicable for secondary trauma as well. Triggers are particular to you and what your experience has been. They can happen when you least expect them. Sometimes you may think all the emotional wounds are healed and something reminds you that there is still a scar. Some things that might set you off or expose your vulnerabilities are sounds, smells, visual reminders. Feelings can be a trigger, such as rage or anger, fear or anxiety. There can also be physical sensations that can trigger you, such as the temperature, weather, clothing, or pain. Once we become more mindful, we can start dealing with our emotions. One way to do this would be by releasing anger, or a more common term is timeout. As foster parents, we have been trained to think of timeout as a bad thing, but a self-imposed one to release anger is different than a discipline strategy. According to scientists that know this type of thing, it takes 30 minutes for your body to release more calming chemicals into your bloodstream after you become upset. So when taking a timeout, make sure to give yourself enough time for that to happen. Now, before you say anything, I will remind you that I'm a parent too. And yes, I realize that leaving your children, especially those exposed to trauma, that long could be a very bad idea. This is maybe when you relax your screen time rules or rely on a support system. However you do it, it's important that you take time to release those emotions. It's a good idea to do something physical during the break, if you can, and the kids can even join you for that. Maybe do some deep breathing together, exercise, play with a pet, or have everyone go on a brisk walk together. Another strategy comes from DBT, a type of therapy. This is when you determine what you're feeling are motivating you to do, and you try to do the opposite. For example, if you're feeling like being inactive, you get moving. If you're feeling like avoiding others, make a point to connect. If you stop doing an activity you previously enjoyed, start it up again. I know it sounds simple, but it really can help. Basically, do the opposite of how you feel and make sure to do the things you're good at and enjoy doing. Encouraging a deeper acceptance of your feelings can also be helpful. Recognize and accept the fact that you are feeling blank. And instead of being upset by it and struggling against the feeling, you free up the mental energy you can use to manage the emotion more effectively. Let's try a shortened version of this right now. To do this exercise, I want you to imagine yourself in the last time that you had an emotional difficult situation you experienced as a result of secondary trauma. You can close your eyes or keep them open, whatever makes you feel more comfortable, but really try to notice everything around you from that situation. The people that were there, the location, the temperature, the sounds, Become acutely aware of how all this makes you feel. As you are doing that, think of where those feelings are being held in your body. If you had to describe the emotion, what would it look like? The color, the size, the shape even. As you get to know the feeling, just let it be. Continue to notice it and any changes it goes through. Breathe and notice. Don't attach a label of good or bad to the feeling. If we were really committed to do this at home, we would now take the time to continue to make room for the emotion, allowing it to go away without trying to force it away. Since that might take a long time with some of those big feelings, we will stop the visualization there. Now, I know this can feel a little awkward at first, but this really can help when dealing with big emotions. It will allow you to start accepting rather than extending energy fighting against these feelings. Imagine you start your day listening to your teenager vent about how hard school is. Then you go to school. 
And research shows that most of you work in a helping field of some sort. And even if you don't, there's almost always some drama or trauma at work. At lunch, your RFC calls and tells you about a child in care that desperately needs a home and the reasons why they need a safe home. By day's end, you find yourself having a difficult time summoning any empathy for your spouse who wants to vent about their own problems. This doesn't mean that you've stopped caring, but like leg muscles on leg day that become tired and shaky after a workout, the circuits in our brain that enable us to be compassionate also need a rest when they're used a lot. Some strategies that can help when you're feeling compassion fatigue is to take a vacation day and use respite. I cannot stress this enough. When I was a new foster parent, I mistakenly thought that because the children I was working with had attachment issues, I couldn't leave them with anyone because that would add to their feelings of abandonment. I thought that until I literally broke down in a doctor's office crying when he told me one of my kids would need a minor surgery. I simply did not think I could handle one more thing on my plate. That very day, I went and scheduled my kids at the Family Support Center and started to set some time aside for myself. I found this to be priceless time, not just for me, but it turned out to be beneficial for my kids too. Please, 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 please take advantage of respite. Another suggestion is to meet up with a peer and support group. Utah Foster Care already has some awesome groups, but if you need more or smaller or more specific to your need, you can establish a group of your own. Some of my best friends are other foster parents because they truly get what you're going through and there's no judgment. Improve your sleep hygiene. As a rule, we are a nation of sleep-deprived zombies. Getting more sleep will literally help you in every aspect of your life. So consider your sleep habits and take some time to figure out where you can make improvements. Becoming more active, such as making a plan to go for a walk with friends, finding a sport you enjoy. The key here would be the follow-through, which is where I tend to struggle. Sometimes writing the designated day and time on your calendar can be helpful. Not only will it help you remember, but it can also protect that time against anything else replacing it. Remember, you are in charge of your own health, both mental and physical, and you need to make it a priority rather than waiting for someone else to. Another idea is to practice yoga or meditation, or you can plan times with friends or family. It may seem silly or like you do not truly value a person if you have to put it on the calendar, but I have found this is the only way it actually happens sometimes. I have a close friend who also works in child welfare. We contact each other every Monday morning and pin in a lunch date in amongst all the other must-dos for the week. And then we guard that time as priority, just as we would for any other meeting. The result is that we meet almost every week, and she keeps me sane, and I try to do the same for her. It has become one of the most important calendar events I have. Compassion satisfaction can be defined as the positive feelings derived from one's ability to help others and contribute to society. Because just as it is important to note that there are risks to opening up your heart to children and families in need, we also need to acknowledge that there's a great deal of satisfaction that one can derive from this work. Looking for and focusing on those can really help on days that trauma becomes too much. Just recently, I had a little girl who was in my home for eight months go back to her mom who is now able to provide her daughter with a safe home. To make this experience even more wonderful, mom lets me have regular contact with her and I get to see her being taken care of and growing up into a smart, beautiful little girl. This experience has really made me see all the good foster care can do and made me feel like I made a positive difference in their lives. Another time, 
I got to see a teenager graduate from high school, which was made even sweeter because she was the first in our family to achieve such an accomplishment. Now, I tap out at fourth grade math, so I didn't necessarily play a huge role in her success, but I felt a great deal of happiness watching her walk across that stage to get her diploma, and it made any negative experiences we had together seem incredibly worth it. When the symptoms of secondary trauma become too much for me, I will often reflect on these and so many other times where I felt the importance and empowerment from what I get to be a small part of. Trauma can also influence how you think as well as how you feel. Now that we have learned how to better manage our feelings surrounding secondary trauma, we can start to explore the thinking that gives rise to uncomfortable emotions. When we become aware of our thoughts and learn to intervene with them, we have a chance to break the event to action chain before our emotions overwhelm us. We can distance ourselves from our troubling thoughts. We can examine our distorted way of thinking that can rise from secondary trauma. And then we can discuss ways to reframe those thoughts and replace a negative inner voice with a more positive form of thinking. Let's take a minute and talk about how we would do that. When we place some distance between us and our thoughts, it becomes easier for us to understand them and to intervene when they're not useful. As you turn your attention towards your own thinking, it's important to remember you are not your thoughts. Feelings of shame or blame about your thoughts will make it harder for you to understand them. A thought is changeable. It's not who you are. One way of doing this is by a strategy referred to as taking the wheel. With this diffusion metaphor, you imagine yourself as the bus driver and your thoughts as passengers on the bus. The passengers, much like your kids, want to tell you what to do, where to go, and generally, you comply with them to keep them quiet. But you are, in fact, in the driver's seat. You can choose to slow down, have conversations with the passengers, or not. And unlike your kids, you can even kick some passengers off. When troubling thoughts threaten to consume you and become hard to manage, bringing this image of driving the bus to mind can help. Another way to control your thoughts is by resisting phishing. Similar to when someone sends you an email trying to elicit personal details like a password or account number by playing on your emotions or sense of urgency, once you encounter such an email and you take the time to examine the message critically, you quickly realize the deceitful intent and delete the email, hopefully. If we approach a troubling thought as if it was a phishing email attempt, we can just as quickly notice how it might hijack our emotions and lead us to unhealthy feelings and actions. And instead, we can put it in the trash folder where it belongs. We also need to examine our thoughts because much of our response to trauma is a search for explanation. We want to make sense of why the trauma occurred and then we will feel more in control of our lives. This is part of the healing process. When an action or behavior isn't what you want, examine the thought behind it and substitute a new one can change the result. The following are some common types of disordered thinking that you should be on guard against. Black and white thinking. That's when you use words like everyone, never, always, and none, which are rarely true when describing an event or person. Disqualifying the positive. It's when you discount someone's positive praise and refuse to see the good, either in yourself or in the world. Likewise, amplifying the negative can be harmful. Using one small detail to paint an inaccurate, bigger picture by overgeneralization is dangerous. An example of this might be, I lost my temper this morning, so I'm a horrible parent. A more positive counterexample would be, I lost my temper this morning. However, I don't do it very often and I have plans to do it better tomorrow. 
Perhaps your distorted thoughts come from being a mind reader or even better, a fortune teller. Unfortunately, neither skill is very accurate most of the time. And when we stop to examine the thoughts we receive by engaging in either way, we can start to see the holes in our views. When we start to recognize we are participating in any of these, we can begin to make changes that will allow our thoughts to reflect accurate information to us. When we stop to reframe our thoughts, we can replace a specific negative or distorted thought that is troubling you with a healthy, balanced thought. Confronting your thoughts by rewriting them on paper will train you to do the same in thinking in real time in your head. I mentioned earlier, when I started to see the world as a dark and scary place, I needed to reframe those thoughts by acknowledging that bad things do indeed happen to good people, including children, but so do good things, which is a much more truthful view of the world. You can also reframe a thought by repeating a mantra when you're struggling to get the thought out of your head. When I start to overthink something, I will come up with a word or a phrase that fits the circumstance and repeat it when the negative thoughts start to consume me. This helps me do all three of the things we just talked about, distance, examine, and reframe, in a short time frame, and it helps me get on track with more positive thoughts. When we take time to acknowledge our feelings and thoughts in regards to trauma we have been witness to, we can start to recognize the need to make some adjustments. But even in this, there are ways to evolve that will bring about lasting, meaningful change in our lives. The first thing that we need to do is be aware that when we try to fix too many things at once, we tend to get overwhelmed and give up before we fix anything. FYI, this principle goes for our kids as well. Each small success we make boosts our confidence, building momentum that helps us achieve the next one, so it's important that we deal with one issue at a time. Another helpful suggestion is to start small. When you decide to attempt to master a new skill to manage your symptoms of secondary trauma, set a goal that you can reach with 90 to 100% certainty. If you don't reach it, go smaller. And if and when you fall off the horse, you do what you tell your kids to do and get right back on. Going slow. I know, I know. Patience is not one of my virtues either. But going slow will help you build your confidence and allow you to enjoy the sense of accomplishment that comes with learning a new skill. Take time to be proud of yourself and resist the urge to rush it. Stephen Covey gives us great advice when he says, be patient with yourself. Self-growth is tender. It's holy ground. There is no greater investment. Everything you're good at, you've had to practice first. Tracking small wins allows you to see the progress, which can be hard to notice otherwise. I have been going to the gym for 18 months now, and I have not had the big results I was hoping for. In the past, when I didn't get instant gratification I have been trained to seek, I have quickly given up, making my attendance a much shorter length. This time, I have chosen to focus on the small improvements in my life, which have been many, including being able to semi-keep up with kids in Jump House. Because I am tracking and noticing those small achievements, I still hit that alarm clock every morning, and without fail, I feel much better going out of the gym than I do going in. That checked your values. I learned about this strategy by reading a book. In the book, she says that we should figure out what our values are and then check with our daily schedules and calendars to see if our values are accurately represented there. By taking the time to define our personal values, we can then discover what's truly important to us and use them as a guide to make the best choice in almost any situation. Likewise, when we violate these self-defined values, we tend to feel guilty which can trigger negative emotional symptoms. 
Another way to combat secondary trauma is self-care. And if you just rolled your eyes at me, I want you to listen to this next part very closely. I know self-care has become a popular term these days. Some of you may envision a day at the spa or a trip to a deserted island. And some of you may dismiss this idea because who has the time, right? Many of us, especially those who've decided to live a life of compassion and service, might even feel like self-care is just another word for selfish. But I'm here to tell you it's not. In fact, it's a vital resource for those of us who are in the position of caring for and loving kids from hard places. I'm convinced that it's so important that we must hold it in high priority. If we are wanting to love others well, we must first love ourselves well. When I first started practicing self-care as a mom of lots of little kids, I thought it was about eating chocolate and watching trashy TV, which is why I gained more weight with my adoptions than my pregnancies and why I know way too much about Grey's Anatomy. Now, I'm not putting a judgment on Snickers and Dr. McDreamy, but that's not actually what self-care is. It's more about becoming a better, happier, healthier version of yourself. It means choosing to act in a way that supports and improves your health and overcoming habits and behaviors that make you miserable. It doesn't need to be a full spa day or even a week vacation, although there may be times that you truly need something like that. However, self-care can be implemented into your daily life in small doses. Finding a few things that nourish your body and soul and putting them into practice can make a world of difference. My favorite time of the day now happens after I get back from the gym in the a.m. I grab my Diet Mountain Dew, counter any positive benefits of the gym, and I listen to a favorite podcast. It takes about 10 minutes, but it makes all the difference in how my day goes. I have recognized that this self-care task is important. And even though it means I set my alarm for 5 a.m., I make sure it happens. When I do, I feel better about myself and the world around me, thus making me a nicer person to be around. At least I like to think it's a self-care and not just the caffeine. In closing, I want to take a minute and be real for a second, maybe more so than I should. But I want to let you know that being a foster parent has been one of the hardest things in my life. I don't say this to elicit any type of praise, because if you couldn't tell from earlier, I hate being thought of as some sort of saint. Besides, my kids will be the first ones to dispel that myth. Rather, I say this to validate your experiences in dealing with secondary trauma. This is hard. In all those years, I have never been hit by someone who's supposed to care for me. I have never known the physical pain that comes along with being truly hungry. I've never been left at a stranger's door or had to say goodbye to a family member, not knowing when I would see them again. I have never endured the pain, both physical and mental, of being sexually abused. And yet, I have the scars of hearing and bearing those wounds with the children I have chosen to share my life with. There have been times, many times, when I swore I was done. Many sleepless nights, headaches that no medicine could touch, and tears that felt endless. And yet, every year I renew my license. Not as some have suggested because I have a God complex or nothing else to do, but because I believe so strongly in what we do as foster parents. I have seen again and again the enormous positive impact that just one person can have on children and families, and I want to be a part of that in the best way I know how. I have been able to continue in this journey as a foster parent for so many years after learning, sometimes the hard way, some of the strategies we've talked about today, and I have plans to implement even more from what I've learned. 
although I'm not perfect at any of them, without them, I do not think I would still be here. And being here is important to me because although empathy does in fact hurt at times, the alternative of children who have been hurt so much more than I, navigating this sometimes scary, difficult world of foster care alone would hurt so much more. I truly hope that what I have said will be helpful to you because as foster parents, caseworkers, Utah foster care employees, your work with children and families is important. Some, including myself, would say it's the most important work we can do as a society. We need you to be aware of and protect yourself against the negative impact of secondary trauma in order to be able to heal the wounds that children bring to you. We need you to keep saying yes to the pain in order to heal theirs. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.